Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a legal conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. Legal, as in lawyers and lawsuits, a group and subject that is generally not giving the warm and fuzzy feeling to doctors. But we are a nation of laws, and we will be talking about legal measures associated with marijuana harms. But I want to explain why I talk about marijuana. I talk about it because I made a mistake early in my career as a young doctor. My mistake was following the national leaders and alleged subject matter experts on opioid and pain. I followed the herd of physicians in prescribing opioids. It didn't seem right when a patient whose injury needed a Band-Aid demanded opioids, but I obliged, not judging their pain as I was taught and handing out Vicodin prescriptions like candy. My wrongs were brought to my attention, not by the medical community, not by the scientific community, but by parents whose children died of opioid prescriptions. They taught me and empowered me to take action and educate the medical community toward change. When I started to speak out on opioids, I was accused of being not compassionate by my colleagues. I was called opioid phobic and patients threatened me and tried to get me fired. It's not popular to be ahead of the curve, but I stood my ground because I saw and studied the death toll. I had to continue to drive change because I met more and more parents who lost children because of medical prescriptions. Now, today, I'm reliving history. I met parents whose children are addicted to marijuana, have cannabis-induced psychosis, and whose children died because of cannabis-associated suicide. I now study the death and health toll associated with cannabis, especially high-potency THC. Once again, I am speaking out with pushback from colleagues and mean jabs in social media. But I stand my ground. I am firm because I know I'm reliving history. I was criticized for my position on opioids, and today people thank me and bless me for that work. The parents and victims of cannabis are leading the way in advocacy, as were the parents and victims of opioid prescriptions. They bring a face to the science and data that measure the risks of cannabis. I have no doubt that advocacy on marijuana will bring an understanding of the harms so people can make better informed decisions. It's just a matter of time. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Many users of cannabis are completely unaware of the dangers 
so many have had psychotic reactions leading them to either take their own lives or kill someone else, even family members. One case in Canada, 30-year-old man stabbed his beloved father and then decapitated him and threw his head in the water. He got five years in prison because he was unaware of the dangers of marijuana. In another case, very similar, a man stabbed and killed his mother after smoking marijuana with his sister. He got four years in prison because he didn't know any better. In Colorado, a man named Richard Kirk had five marijuana-laced uh, candies, went berserk, and ended up shooting his wife in the head as she was calling 911. He did that right in front of his three children. He got 31 years in prison. And in a jailhouse interview, while he was sobbing, he said he didn't even know who his wife was. So my question is, do the perpetrators of these crimes uh, not have legal recourse against the marijuana industry or the state or federal government for not informing them of the dangers to begin with? Wow, Roger, those are deeply disturbing events. But there is medical literature to back up your claims. There are large studies showing the relationship between marijuana use and violence. And one study of nearly 300,000 adolescents and young adults, risk of violence was higher for persistent heavy cannabis users. I refer our listeners to the Isaac website library under violence to see some of the medical literature. But your question is a legal one. So I need a lawyer. And the best lawyer for the job is Mr. Dave Evans. Mr. Evans has decades of legal experience consulting on addiction treatment regulation and a staunch advocate on the consumer protection from marijuana. Mr. Evans is a senior counsel of the Cannabis Industry Victims Educating Litigators, or CIVIL. To learn more about Dave Evans, check out the High Truth show notes. Dave Evans, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. I am very looking forward to this conversation and this podcast. There's a lot that we need to cover on the legal issues of marijuana, but I want to start with why did you choose to be a lawyer? Why law? And then of all things to work on, why drugs and marijuana? Well, I decided to be a lawyer because I, um, I filled out an application for the Peace Corps back in 1968. And um, they asked me if I had any ability or skills or anything and realized I had absolutely nothing to offer. Uh, and then a uh, professor of mine, I'd never thought about law. Uh, I used to argue a lot in this one class with a professor and he said that you should think about being a lawyer because you argue with me all the time. <laughs> so he gave me a book about the legal profession and it just absolutely clicked with me and it was the absolute right choice for my life. I've had a very interesting, uh, exciting life, never a dull moment. Uh, and as far as the drugs go, I uh, came into recovery myself, my senior year in college from uh, drug and alcohol use. And I've been sober now over 53 years. Uh, so uh, that led to my interest in working in the alcoholism field, uh, which I did work for the State Department of Health for several years and then went out into a law practice. So I kept always an interest in substance abuse. Uh, marijuana got to me because I chaired an American Bar Association committee 
on alcohol and drug law reform, and I'm responsible for the ABA being in favor of medical marijuana. Um, and uh, I made a big mistake by not asking, was there another side to this issue? And about a month later, some moms from the anti-drug movement got a hold of me and put me in the backseat of a car and slapped me around for about an hour. <laughs> and I realized my mistake. So that's what got me involved in the marijuana. And I've now come to be spending most of my time fighting against marijuana legalization and trying to bring uh, justice to the victims of the marijuana industry. It's interesting how one mistake can really affect your life. And uh, I, too, my mistake was, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid and prescribing opioids for anybody with, you know, any little abrasion. Um, and I also had the same experience where I got, you know, uh, schooled by parent advocates. And now I learn that that's who I listen to. And now with the issue of cannabis, that's who I listen to as well. So that's similar. Right. Right. The other thing I think we have is Thomas. Didn't isn't your son a lawyer too, and following in your footsteps? Uh, no, no. My son is a cinematographer and uh, a producer, and makes uh, documentary movies. Um, we just had one come out at Tribeca, and uh, my daughter is a teacher. Uh, she teaches uh, high school okay. English. So they didn't want to argue like Dad does. Uh, no, they argue with me all the time. <laughs> and they say, they always tell me, what are you complaining about? This is what you taught us over the dinner table. And especially when they beat me in my arguments. Very annoying. Very annoying. So I, I have a question for you from Roger. Roger sent a very, actually very disturbing um, uh, question to the podcast that I show. It's disturbing. It's just hard to listen to. Um, episodes of violence. Uh, and um, I, even as an emergency doctor who deals with the repercussions of violence, just hearing about the story is just very difficult to me. But he talks about people who under the influence of marijuana shot, stabbed, decapitated loved ones, had no memory of it. And his question is, do the perpetrators of these crimes, interesting question, do the perpetrators of these crimes have recourse against the marijuana industry, states or federal government, because they did not understand the risks of committing such crimes when they use the product. Yes. I could not um, answer the question. I think they I, I wouldn't they even would think it's cause, such a question. <laughs> yeah, they would have a cause of action. Now, the problem that we deal with with uh, getting justice for uh, the victims is the perception among the public that marijuana is benign and harmless. And so when we tell people that it causes violent behavior. We, we did a study of uh, a lot of the mass shooters and the overwhelming majority of them have been involved with marijuana and sometimes chronically involved. The, the uh, guy in Uvalde, Texas who shot up the school was a marijuana user. His mother and his grandmother tried to get him off marijuana because he was exhibiting bizarre behavior. He shot his grandmother in the face and then went in and shot up the school. And that's very common. A lot of the uh, particularly bizarre crimes, stabbings and shootings involve marijuana. Every time I hear about one on television, I turn to my wife and I say, I'll bet you marijuana is involved. And it is. Um, there's a great deal of marijuana psychosis. Um, the uh, marijuana has an effect on people that's different from another drug. Uh, I'm an addict myself. I understand what it's like to be a slave to a drug. But marijuana is different. It takes people over body, mind, and soul. 
Uh, and I brought this up with um, Dr. Volko, who's head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse. And I said, you know, there's really something different about marijuana. You don't see uh, heroin addicts lobbying state legislatures to legalize heroin uh, and, and getting very involved in this. And she said, well, there are cannabinoid receptors throughout your whole body. Uh, and people who are addicted to marijuana see any attempt to get them off marijuana as an existential threat um, because it is their way of life. It is their religion. Uh, it is their means of uh, interacting with other people. And uh, I can always tell a pot user when I'm in a debate with somebody because they get very angry and get personal right away. Uh, so that's what's going on. We have a lot of people out there that are mentally ill because of marijuana. And yes, they could sue the marijuana industry and their victims in particular could sue it. Um, there is a standard uh, medical malpractice cause of action where uh, if a doctor um, gives somebody, say, an opiate and fails to warn them, uh, about the effect of it, that that uh, and they could harm a third party, uh, they can get sued. Uh, the same principle applies alcohol servers. Um, alcohol servers know, uh, say a bartender knows that when he sees somebody drunk in the bar, he should stop giving them alcohol. That doesn't happen with marijuana servers, okay? They try to get people as high as they can uh, and advertise that way, and um, they're very irresponsible in what they do. For plaintiff's attorneys like myself, they're low-hanging fruit because they've been able to get away with murder. They've been, they've been acting recklessly across the board and harming a lot of people, and everybody has been letting them do it, I think because they're really not aware of all the dangers yet. Interesting. You, you bring up the third-party liability of prescribing medications as a doctor, not one I'm aware of because I'm, I'm liable and, and cognizant uh, of that, um, right? If I send home somebody with a seizure and don't tell them not to drive and somebody gets hurt because they had a seizure while driving, then I can be liable as a doctor who didn't um, make that warning. Um, but the whole issue of medical cannabis, I feel like the word medical has been hijacked and we're not following the standard of care that I'm liable to for prescribing you know, an aspirin or amoxicillin, an antibiotic. How is that uh, loophole held? And and I see that even now I've had parents, and, and I'm sure you have too, who um, trace their child's marijuana addiction to a medical marijuana card that they got when they were 18 years old, and yet they cannot go even sometimes find the name of the doctor um, or hold that doctor accountable. Right. Well, this was a scheme that the marijuana legalizers thought up in the 1970s, early 1980s, uh, to promote medical marijuana. And we have a video of them at a conference just joking about this, that uh, they were going to try it. And unfortunately, it took off. And uh, the United States government, which could have stopped it, uh, killed it in its nest. Uh, every administration since the Clinton administration has failed to do their duty uh, to enforce our uh, food and drug laws when it comes to marijuana. Uh, Clinton opened the door. Uh, President Bush, during his eight years, did nothing. And it was during that period that the marijuana industry, through medical marijuana, became wealthy and was able to hire lobbyists. Uh, Obama completely opened the door to it. Uh, and unfortunately, Trump didn't do much either uh, in stopping it. Um, 
So uh, it took off with the public. Uh, it, there's a firm impression in the public's mind that marijuana is a medicine. Uh, they gave marijuana a good name and, uh, and they've been allowed to get away with it. Unfortunately, the medical uh, uh, profession, again, has not been assertive here. Uh, I think out of uh, uh, mixed feelings about it because they partially believe that marijuana might be helpful. They're not very well informed. Uh, maybe there's a financial incentive, but usually the doctors that are doing this on a regular basis, giving out marijuana, are not usually the best doctors. Um, we did an undercover operation in New York, and um, I, I have a history of cancer and spinal cord injury, and I went into one of these pot doctors, and um, I sat down. It was kind of a sleazy storefront operation, and um, he walked into the room without even asking me any questions and said, okay, we're here to get you your marijuana certification. Uh, he was going to give it to me no matter what. I had all my medical records there, everything there. Okay. And I, I was, I never lied to him. I was truthful about it. Uh, and he was filling out the recommendation. Uh, and he said, well, I have to put down something additional like post-traumatic stress syndrome. So I'm going to put that down. And I said, well, doctor, I don't have post-traumatic stress syndrome. He said, well, was having cancer stressful? I said, yes. And he put it down. It was a sworn affidavit that he put it down on. And he gave me the marijuana without even looking at my record, just based on what I told him. I went to the pot store. He gave me a discount ticket to go to the pot store to get a discount on the ticket, which again is illegal under New York law. I walked in there and I presented this affidavit to them. And I said, Dr. So-and-so uh, gave me this and put down that I had post-traumatic stress syndrome, but I don't have post-traumatic stress syndrome. They said, ah, don't worry about it. We give that diagnosis to everybody. We had a mom come in here the other day. She was stressed out about her kids. We put down post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, I could have gone in. There, there's, there's no uh, accurate information on the proper dosing. Um, he didn't ask me if I was still suffering from cancer. He didn't ask me if I was undergoing chemotherapy. Um, there, uh, he didn't ask you if no you're on any medications that may interrupt. No, he didn't ask me that either. He didn't ask me that either, right. I could have been on a prescription medication that has a negative impact if you ingest marijuana or CBD. Uh, none of that was going on. And uh, he just opened the door and let me walk through. I have it all uh, on record. We're going to make it part of a, a lawsuit in New York. But this is pretty typical of what's going on. And uh, it, David, uh, it sounds exactly like the opioid pill mills, government yes. sanctioned opioid pill mills, where you just go to the opioid pill mill, say you have back pain and get a prescription. Nobody checks anything. That's exactly right. And the marijuana industry learned from that. They're following the playbook of both the tobacco industry and the opiate industry and getting these laws passed. Um, the tobacco industry, was sued by the federal government for fraud. Uh, and uh, uh, the judge in that case wrote a large opinion on it uh, about what the, the sleazy things that the tobacco industry was doing, hiding information from the public, lying on science and so forth. If you look at that opinion and you take the word tobacco out and insert marijuana, it was a perfect fit. Everything that the tobacco industry did, that they got called out on, the marijuana industry is doing now. Same thing with the opiate industry. They went out and got it declared that people had a right to be free from pain. And they put a lot of pressure, uh, including a they got a bill passed in Congress to limit the ability of the DEA to go after these pill mills. Unanimous vote in Congress in favor of that. Um, so the Bionic Industry is doing the exact same thing. They've learned that this works, that they can throw out this malarkey to the public. The public will buy it. 
and and then they they make very vigorous attempts to go after anybody that that contradicts them. Uh, but we now have a group of lawyers that are willing to take them on. What about the the issue of calling something a medicine when it's not really treated like one? I mean, they they try to they call they're, they're people who go to the pot store they call them patients and they try right. to you know they they're, they're playing doctor really. Um, right. Isn't there legal resource for calling something of course, a medicine? Of course, it's malpractice to do that. Um, they're allowing the dosing to be decided by these uh, bud tenders. That's the, the staff people that you go in and you say, I've got Crohn's disease. What would you recommend? The bud tender says, well, I think Gorilla gorilla Popcorn would be good for you and, uh, and uh, Shirley Temple, uh, whatever uh, brand would be good for you. They just they have all these crazy names for medicine, um, and uh, that's who's making these decisions. In in Colorado, uh, a university there did a study where they had a woman call the marijuana dispensaries. I don't call them dispensaries; I call them marijuana trafficking operations. Mm. And I don't say medical marijuana; I say in quotes medical, uh, you know, marijuana or or uh, right to make sure that that's not going on. So this woman called them up and said she was in her first trimester of pregnancy. What would they recommend? 66% of them recommended marijuana. And a good portion of those recommended high-potency marijuana. Now, there's very clear evidence that, that ingesting marijuana in your first trimester of pregnancy is very damaging to your fetus. Right. Uh, it can cause underweight birth. It can cause birth defects. It can cause behavioral problems later on. It affects spermatogenesis in, in the husband. Uh, the American College of uh, Obstetricians and Gynecologists has issued warnings on this. The state of California has issued warnings on it. The state of New Jersey has issued warnings on it. And yet doctors are still doing it. Nobody is making these people be responsible. First of all, I love how lawyers know medicine more than more than the doctors. And I think that that's typical of lawyers who focus on a certain medical aspect. They actually understand the, the the medical science more than, you know, the medical community at large. So you're definitely that person. I'm very impressed. You just, just you know, I know exactly the studies that you're talking about when you said that. But when right. you say that you had this undercover operation where a pregnant woman was calling and asked what marijuana she did, was that a, really a doctor or a bud tender who's recommended? No, she was a, a woman who called up the marijuana trafficking stores. And just said, look, I have an inquiry here. I'm in my first trimester of pregnancy. What would you recommend? Practice it's not from a doctor? No, no. Okay. She just okay. said, I'm pregnant. And so what, uh, what, laws, what laws were violated by, by them saying, yeah, you should smoke pot even though you're pregnant? In your first well, that, that's going to depend on state law. But most states require uh, that at least you have some contact with a physician or somebody that is like a physician, uh, like a nurse practitioner. Any, in New York, for example, anybody that can dispense controlled substances can make this kind of a recommendation. Uh, and uh, it is a recommendation, it's not a prescription, because if they issued a prescription, that would violate federal law. Uh, so they just recommend marijuana. Uh, but very often they don't know enough about the dosing because there is no information on dosing right. um, uh, to recommend the dosing. So they leave it up to the marijuana store uh, to make that decision. And of course, somebody who is uh, the bud tender is somebody that's not medically trained. Um, 
It's just somebody that probably likes marijuana and decided to go to work for the store. Right. Uh, or they to took a percent. certificate course for $2.99. <laughs> or something like that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But it's is, very, very So sleazy. is that breaking a law? Are they are they really breaking a law or are there safeguards within the law, like states who have, you know, lists of diagnosis, or I call this government officials pretending to be doctors, where they just list right. diagnosis and then okay. Yeah, they do list have. the list diagnoses and um it's it's arrogance on the part of the legislatures. I just testified against medical marijuana at the North Carolina legislature. And that was one of the things I said to them. I said, show some humility. You're not the FDA. Okay. You're not qualified to make this decision. And the conditions that are listed um, that the marijuana advocates say marijuana will be helpful for, the science is either non-existent or very, very uh, poor uh, or done on low populations. For example, glaucoma is a typical uh, illness that somebody will have um, in one of these state statutes. And that was based on a study done years ago, the marijuana lowered interocular pressure in somebody's eye, which is what causes the problem with your vision. Well, the Glaucoma Association looked at this and said, no, this is bad news because by smoking and then stopping smoking, the interocular pressure goes up and down and can actually damage the optic nerve and cause blindness. And yet the legislators just believe what they're told. And I'm they smiling, write Dave, because you're doing a really good job explaining medicine. Oh, thank you. The <laughs> other thing is post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, they, they play up veterans. Now, I'm a former army officer. I've got a warm spot in my heart for veterans. My right. brother and was- Right, how in, dare they use our veterans, our heroes? Well, they're, they're using them. As guinea They're using them. And, and exploiting the, the VA them. has come out and said, look, this is not good. Uh, first of all, if you're treating somebody for an emotional, psychological problem, you don't want to put something in their head that interferes with their ability to process feelings. Marijuana certainly does that. Uh, also, the veterans that have been given this have a higher tendency to get engaged in violence. Uh, so it interferes with treatment. It's like giving marijuana for opiate addiction. When you need people to be able to accept and emotionally process things, it just interferes with the whole process. But yet they have these veterans who come in and say, you know, that this helped me. Um, these are anecdotal stories, uh, and we don't do medicine by anecdotes. If we did, we'd be, we'd be doing nothing but snake oil right now. That would be it. Right. That's all we'd be doing. Well, we've talked about that. I, I think we are in an age of snake oil. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All yeah. right. So when when as a lawyer. Um, taking lawsuits, legal actions, uh, there has to be victims. Who are the victims? And I know that you you mentioned several. Well, we've had a number the of uh, the, the most, I'll start with the most tragic ones first. There are people whose children have committed suicide because of marijuana. And a typical victim is a kid who gets into the marijuana one way or the other through medical or whatever, uh, becomes mentally ill, depressed and becomes suicidal. And even the CBD product, which is approved by the FDA, warns about suicidal ideation. So you should not be giving marijuana to anybody that has a mental health problem or is depressed. But nobody ever gets asked about that. When and they, when and, they and that what you're saying is also on the FDA label of uh, dronabinol, low dose THC that's FDA approved. What you're saying is exactly on that morning later. It's on that. Yeah. So that that is a tip off right there. So any doctor who gives it to anybody uh, and any doctor who gives it to anybody without checking on their mental health status, I think is guilty of negligence and guilty of malpractice. 
Um, so typically what I've seen happen is that the kid will get involved in marijuana. The parents will say, look, you've got to do something about this. Come home. We'll help you with it. We got to do something about it. Rather than giving up the marijuana, the child commits suicide. And I've seen this several times. The marijuana has such a hold on them that they would rather face death than give it up. Uh, I remember one suicide note, a mother from Arizona, uh, where the, the boy in a suicide note said, you know, this has ruined my soul, has taken my soul, and they commit suicide. We had another situation in Maryland where a mother said, come home, we want to help you get off the marijuana. On his way home, he stepped out of the car, stepped onto the interstate, and, and was run over. Uh, we had another situation in Texas very similar to this. We had another situation, uh, another Texas situation where uh, they would rather die than give up the marijuana. And this is the danger. The parents say, I lost my child. I lost my child before they committed suicide, but my child became irrational, would not listen, would not accept that marijuana was the problem. And uh, and he he was just gone. He or she was gone. So those are the most tragic ones. Next in line would be children that have developed a mental illness uh, and uh, a psychosis or some other mental illness, chronic depression uh, that are just lost as being effective human beings. Um, and then there's people that suffer physical damage. Uh, for example, marijuana uh, use can lead to bleeding if you're on blood thinners. And um, if you take, uh, if you undergo surgery uh, and have other problems, you could die from it. Um, the CBD product, which is I've, I've seen by that, it. by the way, you're, you're, yeah. I know you're, you're, you're reading literature, but I see those things in real life, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, also CBD, uh, the warning, uh, the package insert for the CBD product says, uh, that this can, that you need to, it can affect your liver can damage your liver and you should have your liver enzymes checked. So anybody using CBD should have their liver enzymes checked. And that product was only tested for people up to the age of 55. So a lot of people that are elderly, like myself, uh, are eating CBD like candy and are probably frying their livers. Uh, this is the kind of damage that-, uh, that And all have. the drug interactions, because usually people who are older are taking other medications and they're- Exactly, exactly other medications. And it can affect uh, antidepressants, can affect a lot of uh, problems. We don't even know everything yet. And this is all something that we would find out if it went through the FDA process. And so people can be warned and physicians can be warned, but none of that is going on. The, the warning labels that the states have are very cryptic, not effective. It just says things like use responsibly, or they might say don't use if you're pregnant, or don't drive a motor vehicle. But all the other things we just talked about, cardiac we, problems. We, last year, we tried a labeling law in California on dispensaries and and got got shut down. There's uh, too much um, cannabis lobby money. Um, That's to right. Be able to pass that. That's right. They have 81 lobbyists uh, in Washington D.C. right now. We have one. And when I testified before the North Carolina Legislature, um, uh, there must have been 10 to 15 lobbyists there on the other side. Uh, that's how much money. One of the lobbyists told us that he got offered. $700,000 if he could get the medical marijuana bill passed. That's how much money is behind the same thing with opiates, same thing with tobacco. Yeah. Uh, the tobacco companies spent millions of dollars uh, avoiding justice, and finally they were not able to.
victims. Any you mentioned different older people, uh, suicide, mental health, but I'm sure there's Car crash more. victims. Uh, we have a mother who lost a beautiful daughter to a guy that smashed into her uh, high on marijuana. Uh, he was a medical marijuana user. We have the we have the toxicology report from that. Um, People working in the marijuana industry are victims because they're exposed to pesticides, they're exposed to the marijuana. Uh, there have been health problems that they've had. The products are notoriously full of heavy metals, uh, fungus, um, bacteria, uh, and, and contamination like that. Uh, one dispensary in Massachusetts, excuse me, I made a slip, one marijuana trafficking store in Massachusetts, uh, there was mold on the marijuana. And they were just, they brushed it off using hydrogen peroxide and then sold it to people. Smoke. This is, you know, these people, uh, before it got legalized, when they were selling marijuana, were criminals. We've now authorized criminals to sell marijuana, and we're surprised when they behave like criminals. I know, it still uh, sounds yeah. like the opioid pill mills. It's the same thing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly that's going on. Yeah. Um, there is hope. I'm, I'm seeing more and more news stories now about the dangers of marijuana. We didn't see that even a year or two ago. So that's starting to, to good. Your physician's organization is doing a terrific job. You just got accepted by the United Nations on a consulting basis. You'll be able to go to Vienna uh, and advocate against all the marijuana legalization. You guys have a great website. Yeah. It's uh, Isaac, the uh, International Academy on Science and Impact of Cannabis. Right. They're sponsoring this episode. So Yes, right. They've done a marvelous job. I, I'm very, very happy to see it. An excellent quality of the work that's on your website. Uh, we have used your materials to educate people, and it's sorely needed. And you've great. also placed some great ads in, on the Hill and other places. Great. Um, great. Thank you. So I, I think it's a matter of time. Uh, I've, I've pretty much given up on the government to do anything responsible about this. Uh, so I, I'm now become an advocate for litigation. Uh, because there we can go toe to toe with these people. We can present our evidence before supposedly a neutral fact finder uh, and uh, they cannot overwhelm us with money. Um, I've spent most of my legal career litigating against big companies and big law firms. They don't do any better than I do. Uh, and we've got some very good lawyers now that are tough and not afraid to take these people on. So we just filed a lawsuit in New York uh, to get rid of their medical marijuana uh, rules and their um, uh, their advertising and their um, uh, labeling rules that that were in violation of federal law. We're about to file next week a federal lawsuit against the state of New York again um, because the state is financing marijuana trafficking operations. They're putting two hundred million dollars into setting up uh, marijuana stores in New York, and a lot of states are doing that now. California, Minnesota. Uh, we're filing a lawsuit. The next lawsuit we're going to file in New York is against public smoking of marijuana uh, because it contaminates the air. Uh, and we're about to file a lawsuit, I hope, within the next month in Minnesota against their new law. Uh, we also have some personal injury cases going. Um, we have a case in Michigan right now of a young man that had Crohn's disease who committed suicide. Uh, that, that has passed the initial uh, clearance by the court. The court's allowing it to go forward. Uh, as soon as some lawyers start getting big judgments, all of a sudden the other lawyers are going to pay attention when they see wow. that there's some. That's true. Enemy. All you need is one big case, and all one the lawyers, big case. They're going to jump they're on board. Join. Right. And, and, and is my that organization, what, yeah. 
My Go organization, civil, C-I-V-E-L dot org, C-I-V-E-L, has uh, legal briefs, complaints, um, legal memorandums on all the areas where they can sue the marijuana industry. And we give these out to free to lawyers. Uh, anybody who's interested, they can have it for free. We don't charge for our services. So let me ask you, civil, cannabis industry victims educating um, litigators. You're um, head of that organization, civil. Yes. Is that meant for other lawyers so they can also um, get an, the lawsuit action or is that meant for victims? It's really for both. Um, we've had victims contact us and we've worked to uh, try to get them attorneys or if they have an attorney to educate the attorney. Uh, the attorney, uh, first of all, it's hard to get lawyers in this area. Uh, again, because of that problem, they don't believe the marijuana is that harmful. Uh, and it's all new to them. They don't understand the science behind it. They don't understand the causes of action. So what we've done uh, with this one lawyer in Michigan, he got interested in it. Uh, we had Bertha Madras from Harvard Medical School talk with him. I gave him all the information. We helped him write the complaint. We did some research for him. So now he is competent in this area. And we're going to try to get other cases to go to him. Uh, awesome. And uh, that's the process that we do with lawyers. We try to educate them and get them on board with what we're doing. Now, if listeners are hearing this show and they're thinking, well, my loved one is a, a victim or, or I'm a victim uh, of the industry, who do they contact? Uh, they can contact me at civil, um, C-I-V-E-L.org, uh, and contact, I'm senior counsel there. Uh, it's just senior counsel at C-I-V-E-L.org. Uh, I will talk with them. Uh, we don't give legal advice because I'm only licensed to practice law in New Jersey, uh, and but we will help them find a lawyer. Uh, we will work with that lawyer. We will educate lawyers. We've done a number of webinars. We just did one uh, a few days ago for Every Brain Matters. If you go on their website, Every Brain Matters, you can have access to, uh, to that webinar. Uh, myself and George Ritz, uh, who is my co-counsel in the New York cases, and then also um, Aaron uh, uh, Kles from uh, New Mexico is looking for class action lawsuit clients from Colorado. Uh, we will do what we can to be helpful to them. Uh, and uh, one of the big problems is that people just wait too long. Uh, I, I got a very sad uh, email from a father yesterday. Uh, his son died from uh, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Uh, and, you know, they all, people say that uh, marijuana can't kill people. Well, if you have cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, you can die from it. Okay, it can kill yeah. you. Uh, this is where you have uncontrolled vomiting. We but call it he, scrummeting. Dave, scrummeting, have, you heard, right. have you heard of scrummeting? Oh, yes, yes. And they're very difficult to treat because you tell them it's the marijuana and they say, there's no way. It couldn't be marijuana. It's got to be something else. Right. But unfortunately, this gentleman waited too long. This all happened back uh, over three years ago. So uh, every state has a different um, uh, statute of limitations. So you should act as quickly as possible. Uh, most states, it's two years, but it might be one year. Uh, it might be less. So you have to move as quickly as possible and get, and get an attorney. So our job will be to help you locate the attorney and then educate the attorney. You, you know, talked about the playbook for the marijuana industry, copying tobacco and copying opioids. I'm wondering if you can copy also as far as 
fixing the problem with tobacco and opioids. And I'm sure way back then, and when you're talking about statute of limitation, you smoke a puff of cigarettes, you don't die. Nobody died of a puff of, of tobacco. It took years to do that. And then eventually we're able to litigate that. Can we learn from that and apply that to- uh, Yeah, the, the statute of limitations, and again, it might depend on different state laws, but generally the statute of limitation starts when you should have reasonably known that the marijuana caused the problem. Okay, mm -hmm. when it was obvious that that was the case or you should have reasonably known about it. Uh, so you're right. I mean, you could have surgery they could leave something in your body that wouldn't affect you five years later. And then all of a sudden you go in and you find out that it's the surgery from five years ago. Statute of limitations starts running at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, when you, you know, you, you should, a reasonable person would have known that it was a problem. Right. So I really urging people, if you feel like you have been victimized, contact civil. And then do you, you keep a list of these, right, for potential class action suits? Uh, yes, we, we keep a list of people who contact us um, and we try to, you know, work with them as much as possible. A lot of times they need counseling. Uh, we refer them to the victims groups. Uh, a lot of these folks are just really shocked. I try not to push them into litigation while they're going through the grief period. I mean, I make them aware of the time limit, but I don't, I don't start off by just saying you should sue them. I want to make sure that they've got adequate support first, uh, that they've got somebody to talk to. Um, and uh, there can be disputes in the family about who's responsible for what happened to their loved one. Uh, the father might blame the mother, the mother might blame the father. Yeah. Uh, so I wanna make sure they have a handle on that stuff before, I, I mean, I talked to them about the litigation, but I wanna make sure that they're able to handle it first. Litigation can be very anxiety producing, can be very enraging. Uh, and I want to make sure these people are stable enough to be able to handle it. Uh, and what I tell them is that they're going to, the other side's going to say four things to you. Uh, they're going to say uh, that your client's a liar. They're going to say, we did nothing wrong. And they're going to say, we don't owe you any money and go away before we destroy you. Okay. And they're going to tell you that up to the minute before they settle the case. So you have to just be prepared for that. It's, it's tough. Uh, yeah. being involved in litigation. It's really a test of wills. And we so we try to support people to keep them enthusiastic. Right. So, and you said you have a number of individual suits. Can you elaborate on any of them to so people can explain or, you know, understand what, what are some well, of the Well, we have, right. We've been focusing on uh, primarily recently suits against the government. We've been trying to get personal injury lawsuits going uh, Michigan is one that we have going. Uh, there are other lawsuits going that we didn't start, uh, but we have bought, you know, helped the attorneys. We have one in New York where an when a, a guy was uh, uh, used CBD and was told there was no THC in it. He was a truck driver. He tested positive for THC, lost his job. Okay, so we'll work with attorneys. We've worked with attorneys in California, you know, to help them with various cases. Um, it's been a problem because, again, there's that view that marijuana is not that harmful. That is now starting to change. So I feel like we're just on the cusp right now yeah. of, and we've developed enough legal expertise and have enough, you know, technology that we've developed, legal technology and medical knowledge. And we've also uh, developed a list of experts 
that can come in because to prove these cases, you have to have an expert come in and say that it uh, that it was malpractice. So we have a very good group of experts uh, that are available uh, that people can hire. We don't we don't pay for the expert um, to to do all that. So we're ready to go, and um, and also now we're plaintiffs. Right. Do you have Do you have any wins, or is this all still in process? Not not. Uh, not yet. You know, it's still too early. Um, litigation goes on usually for two, three years. We don't have any wins right now. Um, there have been some wins. Uh, uh, the um, Merrick Garland, our attorney general, went into court uh, to get uh, marijuana marijuana users not to be allowed to have firearms. Uh, they won that case in Florida. Uh, so, so that was a win uh, for us. Um, so, so say in, that again. In Florida, what is the what is the? Well, in Florida, the uh, a couple of medical marijuana users wanted to be able to have guns, and mm-hmm. uh, if you're using medical marijuana, you can't have a gun under federal law. So the U.S. Attorney General went into court and said, "Yeah, this is not good. We don't want you to have guns because people who use marijuana are unstable. They're not good at making decisions." Uh, and the court agreed and denied them the ability to have guns. Right. And, and it's not uh, just it, marijuana, right? If you're impaired from opioids or benzodiazepines or whatever anything else. like that. But, but in this right. case, it was medical marijuana users. Mm-hmm. And they were actually supported in that lawsuit by the secretary of agriculture from Florida, um, you know, coming in on this. And this is this is what happens. We have people that are. Well, um, I, I think absolute, you should call that a win. You should add that to your win. Point. Oh, that's a win. That's a win. Yeah. Right. We didn't have anything to do with it, but it's a win. Okay. <laughs> um, and you know we've 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 had some wins on state laws recently. We just defeated medical marijuana in uh, North Carolina. We used uh, legal information for that. Uh, Oklahoma also rejected marijuana. South Dakota, North Dakota, uh, Virginia reversed marijuana legalization last year. Uh, so we are we are getting. How, how did wins. that go? How did a state? How did that well, happen? they what happened in Virginia is that they passed a law under a Democratic governor, um, and the law had to be uh, voted on again within a year. So there was an election. They got a Republican governor in, uh, and the Republicans got control of one of the houses, and um, the the law had to be voted on again, and it just never came up for a vote because they wouldn't let it come up for a vote. So but you, you mentioned out. Democrats, Republican. Is this a partisan issue? Are Republicans, are Democrats pro-pot and, and Republicans anti-pot? I mean, I feel like pot users are anti-users. Yeah, I, I would say generally it's it's been a partisan issue. Uh, more Democrats support than Republicans, although the guy pushing marijuana in North Carolina was a Republican. Uh, but generally, you know, most of the Democrats vote for it. In, in North Carolina, uh, every single Democrat voted for it in the Senate. And uh, the Republicans were split. Um, but the marijuana industry is very persuasive. They have used focus groups. Uh, they uh, throw around a lot of money. Uh, and uh, we had a, a town in New Jersey that was offered a half a million dollars to pass a marijuana ordinance. Uh, there have been a number of corruption cases. The former Speaker of the House in Michigan uh, just got indicted for marijuana corruption. Uh, he was on the cannabis board and was and accepted bribes. Uh, the FBI has a special unit on this because it's been so common. Um, so there's a, a lot of money. It happened in Massachusetts also. Uh, you know, they'll offer 
maybe not a direct bribe, but they'll say, well, we'll donate to your ambulance squad or we'll do this or we'll do that. And um, uh, so those are issues also. Interesting. Um, so you have a lot of opinions on government regulations or lack of regulations. Um, what what would you say um, for the FDA? What should the FDA be doing? What's their role? Because they feel that they're in a catch-22. It's federally illegal. So how could they regulate a product that's federally legal? And so they're in a catch-22 circular argument of what they can do on marijuana. Well, I, I don't I don't agree with that. I've met with the FDA about this. I'm very familiar with their process and what goes on there. Uh, first of all, uh, they have clear jurisdiction if THC or CBD is used as a food or a food supplement. They can shut that down. They have the authority to do that. Okay. Even they say that, that, that it's illegal. Now, what happened with medical marijuana is that uh, and they the just did that right recently with with some candies. I don't know why they didn't do that with no. all candies, but they did it for well, some. Well, they they should. Uh, that 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 candy group were particularly attractive to minors, so they're sort of putting their foot in the water. But they did that in conjunction with the Federal Trade Commission. Okay. Now here's what happened: mm -hmm. the U.S. Congress passed a law in the Appropriations Bill saying that no Department of Justice money can be spent going after state medical marijuana programs. The FDA for enforcement relies on Department of Justice lawyers. So they can't shut anybody down because they need the Department of Justice lawyers to do that. And the Department of Justice has been hamstrung by Congress in that regard. That does not apply to the Federal Trade Commission. They have their own lawyers. And they have actually engaged in a lawsuit in California against a CBD company and it was the FDA and the Federal Trade Commission that recently did this. So there is some hope. Um, and uh, but you know what happened when the majority of the states adopted medical marijuana? Their members of Congress said, "Well, I have to go along with my state, not allow the the, F, the the DOJ to go in there." But that is a limited immunity because if anybody is violating the state law regarding medical marijuana they lose their immunity from the federal government. But again, the federal government is not being very active in this. They're, they're shutting down major rowing operations, but they're not doing a whole lot against medical marijuana. Uh, the FDA has issued a lot of statements against it, saying it's unhealthy. They've issued dozens of warning letters to companies saying, don't do this, it's illegal, but they're not doing anything about it. Interesting. And what do you think should be done? Well, I think they... I think, first of all, that uh, that they should enter into enforcement actions uh, through the FTC if the federal law doesn't change. I think the FDA should lobby Congress to get rid of that medical marijuana restriction. Uh, and um, Which would not be popular, right? People love their, I mean, it's medicine after all. Well, that I think there's a lot of political considerations in this, but, you know. I, I'm wondering if, being, if you're going to call something and again, you're the lawyer, but to me, if you're going yeah. to call something a medicine and treat it as a medicine and, and, yeah. and with all the responsibilities that I have as a doctor for prescribing a medicine, but otherwise right. don't call it a medicine. And I'm wondering if right. that's an ang a legal angle. Well, it's it certainly is. I mean, and the FDA has clearly said it's not a medicine. They've they've taken that position. I've read their their warning letters. I mean, and their public statements, they clearly say it's not a medicine. It's an illegal huh. music. Uh, there's no question about that. Now, where that can be used is in private lawsuits uh, that you can you can uh, go into court and say, was this medicine approved by the FDA? No. 
it would meet the other criteria for approval as a medicine. There's five or six uh, criteria that a court established. Did it meet that? No. And yet you still used it? Why did you use it? Well, the state said I could. But wait a minute, you're a doctor. You have to exercise independent judgment here. Just because the state says something's legal doesn't mean that you should be doing it. Did you, did you, what kind of analysis did you do of this person? Right. Did you ask them all these questions about their past? Did you check their and blood pressure? <laughs> check their blood pressure. Exactly. Uh, and what, doctor, what is the proper dosing for that? What science exists that shows dosing of marijuana for Crohn's disease? It does not exist. So are there successful exist. lawsuits against physicians who are recommending, not prescribing marijuana not with yet. adverse, not with yet. adverse we'd like to get some. We'd like to get some going. We are all ready to go on that. We have a whole medical malpractice complaint drawn up. We have a legal memorandum on medical malpractice. We have articles on how to do the discovery of medical practice, medical malpractice, how you vet clients, questions you should be asking the clients uh, before you, uh, you give anybody uh, marijuana as a medicine. We're all ready to go. We just need some some plaintiffs. And that's it's really hard because I'm thinking of my job where I see victims every single shift, multiple times a shift with cannabis-induced psychosis, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, uh, cannabis-associated heart issues. Um, but they they wouldn't want to rat on the industry, especially if they're still addicted. No, that's, uh, that's a problem. And you can see uh, John Fetterman is a perfect example of this. Fetterman is the U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania that had a stroke and cardiac problems. Uh, he's been a big marijuana advocate and user of marijuana. And I- Right, and I couldn't help myself thinking you had a stroke and you're using marijuana. Did anybody right. tell you that that's right. you know, a problem? And I bet you right. nobody did. Well, he got treated at Walter Reed, I think, and uh, they know better because I am I, a veteran. Really? I, I don't know if they know better. Well- now, they know about surgery. I have a veterans, uh, veteran friend of mine that got surgery there, and he was told to not use marijuana. Um, but nice. there's a tremendous ignorance in the medical profession there about is. all of this. And again, if we can get a doctor in court, get a big judgment against that doctor, all of a sudden, other doctors are going to start paying attention. Oh, yeah. They'll definitely pay attention. That's yeah. It happened with opioid, right? I, I feel like I'm reliving history. When yes. doctors are sued, it, you know, that information goes like wildfire, even if it's not right. precise. So when doctors were right. sued for not prescribing opioids, then it's like, okay, we're all going to give it out because if we don't, we're going to get sued. And then when doctors were sued for giving and people died, then we're like, okay, I got to be, you know, so that, right. that has a tremendous right. effect. Yeah, it really does. And um, we've we've got a potential case in New Jersey of a guy who became uh, mentally ill, um, and uh, he is playing with the idea of filing the lawsuit. So um, I think also there's a tremendous social pressure uh, to not be a prohibitionist or be a nerd about marijuana. And, um, uh, and you know, so I think that's part of the problem also. Uh, it happens to me all the time. I give people accurate information about marijuana. Are, are you just... a prohibitionist? <laughs> I no, I'm not opposed to marijuana being used as medicine uh, as long as it goes through the FDA. Certainly, I, I've had cancer three times. Um, I don't want three different types of cancer. Uh, I certainly want to be able to have everything available to me. I would have no trouble using. Uh, there are two synthetic forms of THC, uh, Chesimet and Marinol, that are approved by the FDA. Uh, if I had 
you know, nausea from chemotherapy, I would consider that, although they're not very good for that. Right. Um, Why would you take and, that if you could take Zofran or Phenergan or? Oh yeah, there's we. That's one of the other things we do. We've given people a whole list of better medications for uh, chemotherapy than marijuana. But I'm not opposed to marijuana being used as medicine. But smoking marijuana is not a medicine. You can't titrate the dose. Uh, it's just and, inherently and dangerous. And maybe instead of saying, I'm not opposed to marijuana being used as medicine, you're not opposed to chemicals within the marijuana plant. Correct. That's a better That's a better way of phrasing it. Right. 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 Because it's not, because, no one thinks a plant with a bunch of chemicals that have never been studied, 500 of them. Right. Um, right. With, with toxins and carcinogens, how could that be a medicine? Right. Yeah, and and we don't we don't have all the information. There's hundreds of different uh, things in marijuana that have not been studied effectively. Yeah. And yet consumer are... protection, um, false marketing is that an arena that you're you're taking on? I was Absolutely. really appalled. Absolutely. I had a, a whole podcast with. Um, it really shaked me. Really to see that. People are advertising this. They're advertising for drinks of uh, with kratom in it, an opioid that people are getting addicted to, and they're advertising that to people. Oh, this will help your alcoholism, and they've right. people who finally got off alcohol and now they're addicted to kratom and buying these containers. And it's still you go to their website; they're still advertising this as a wellness health drink. Well, you can you can report them to the FDA. I do that all the time. There's, uh, you go on the FDA website to report those things, you can do it. Um, but yeah, we have a whole, again, a whole legal uh, kit on uh, product liability, uh, false advertising, failure to warn. How about uh, all these children who are getting into their parents' gummies? I guess their parents don't want to sue because they're maybe embarrassed that they're, because they're kind of Well, that's that's a problem. Yeah, that's a problem. That's, that's certainly a problem. And uh, people, uh, we had this doctor in Texas whose son committed suicide in the family living room, died in his father's arms. Um, he didn't want to sue because he was concerned about getting the local doctors upset with him. Uh, these are the kinds of things that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to get people um, to... Uh, I, I think, think if you could get one baby, you know, if it was like, you know, an aunt's right. medicine, not the mother's, you know, and get well, we have baby. a we have a potential case on that in in Michigan right now that we're thinking about taking on. Uh, a woman worked in a pot uh, distribution facility. A company came in with some products uh, to display for them uh, that they might want to sell, and they had some free samples. Uh, so a lot of these were edibles. Okay. And if you look at the package, it said no THC. So she just thought, okay, these are gummy bears and brownies. No big deal, right? So on her way home, she was hungry and she gobbled them down and got very high, realized, oh my, you know, my goodness, this is not what they told me. She wound up with a developmentally um, uh, disabled child and, um, and she was not using marijuana. Uh, so that is something that we're looking at right now about taking that case. She was, she but, was pregnant? She, oh, yes, I'm sorry. She was seven months pregnant at the time. Uh, and she, of course, she was very obvious being pregnant at that stage. Nobody nobody warned her, don't use it. You know? It may but be a hard case thought, because usually the effects are first, maybe second trimester rather than third trimester. Well, I, I checked with Dr. Stuart Reese about that. He is yeah. the really the kind of the world expert on yeah, he is. Uh, marijuana. And I said, could it in the third 
trimester pregnancy had the same effect? He said, yes. So uh -huh. before, before I decided to hit the case, I checked with him because he's the one that's written the most internationally on the subject and is the most knowledgeable about it. And he said, yes, it could. Right. Um, we, we definitely have the, the ABCD studies, long-term population-based uh, studies mm -hmm. that show that pregnant women who use marijuana, their children, and you mentioned this at the beginning, have long-term mental health effects later in life. Mm -hmm. those, those kids do, so it, it definitely right. yeah. um, do that. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And, and once this all becomes publicly known, uh, which we're trying to get the word out, uh, you know, we're probably where we were with cigarettes maybe in the 1960s, where people said, yeah, they're dangerous, but they hadn't really come to accept it yet. And uh, people of my generation, when their parents started dying from tobacco, both my parents did. Um, uh, you know, my parents were the World War II generation and they smoked a lot. Everybody started getting the idea then that this was something that we really need to look at. And then with the opiates, when they when they legalized opiates, when Congress restricted DEA, we said, you're going to have an opiate epidemic. It's It's going to come. And, um, you know, they expect these people to act like saints and they're not. You know, they're they're people that are want to make money and they don't give a damn who they hurt. Right. That's, that's what bad things happen with a government place doctor, because being a doctor patient relations thing, things are very individualized. And when you make population based right. decisions, there's huge consequences to that. And, right. and and we are reliving history with these this type of poor public health decision making. Yes. Yes. It, it's, yeah. really, uh, it's really it's really a shame. Have you heard about a cannabis industry uh, lobbying to get the commercial insurances to pay for people's pot because it's medicine? Yes. What do you think of that? Uh, we've actually been contacted by one of those insurance companies, and um, they they wanted to know everything that we could give them on the risk that doctors were running by by giving out marijuana. And I said, well. I'm not exactly sure if we're on your side, I said, because you're you're looking to protect these doctors. And then we thought about it a little bit more. And we said, look, if they're willing to go out and tell everybody how bad marijuana is, that achieves our goal. Secondly, if there is insurance coverage, there's going to be a pot of money for our plaintiffs. So we're keeping them at arm's length, but we're giving them information about uh, the threat to the medical profession. Um, and, uh, I, 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 I don't want to be in the position to look like I'm trying to get business for these guys, but, um, they've got the resources to distribute a lot of this information. And if it scares the hell out of the doctors, I'm all for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, anything I do, everything I do is in medicine is under such scrutiny. And it doesn't make sense that something like that is, it just gets a free pass. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. You you also work with treatment addiction treatment centers and consult them. And recently there was an email exchange about people with medical marijuana cards who go into addiction treatment, but they have the card so they could still use marijuana. Um, right. What are your issues and advice on that? Well, I, I uh, my response to them was that uh, they first of all had to check their state law about that. But um, I think that... Uh, uh, all addiction treatment providers should not allow use of any substance, uh, that it's counterproductive. Except, What about um, Suboxone? Uh, well, I think that is different um, because the goal of that, uh, I know that people argue that it uh, keeps somebody addicted, but 
it does allow people to resume a fairly normal life. Um, I represented a doctor um, on a uh, on a before the state medical board on an issue other than Suboxone, uh, but he was doing a lot of Suboxone, and I read dozens of letters from his patients about how it helped them uh, to regain their lives. Um, now, my position about my own life is I don't use anything intoxicating, okay, because uh, it it'll cause me to relapse. And I think that all treatments should be aimed at abstinence. Um, but uh, I think if if Suboxone will help somebody, um, and then at the same time, we have aggressive treatment, one of the big problems with these harm reduction programs where they allow people to have drugs and needles and so forth is that they're not aggressive about treatment. We should be imposing mandatory treatment on addicts if everything else fails. They should be committed to treatment. Uh, I used to run the drunk driving program. They, in they New don't Jersey. like to be called addicts, people with a substance use disorder. I understand. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and that's uh, again trying to put lipstick on a pig. Um, but I I ran the drunk driving program in New Jersey. I forced fifteen thousand people a year to go into treatment uh, for a minimum of four months, and if they didn't do it, we put them in jail. I had the lowest recidivism rate in the United States for DUI. But you probably uh, saved a lot of people's lives too. Absolutely. So I think there should be more commitment laws so family members can commit an adult member of their family. Uh, we have a law in New Jersey, which I helped to get passed, where uh, if a juvenile is in crisis with their family, the family can go into to, uh, family court uh, and get the juvenile ordered into treatment or uh, a juvenile can get their parents ordered into treatments. <laughs> it can go both ways. Oh. Uh, I'm very much in favor of ordering people to go into treatment because you first of all have to have to get their head clear, get them off the drugs so they can focus on what's going on. Right. And it yeah. has to be a long-term thing. Not 28 days is not enough. That's why we put people in for four months. That was minimum. Right. Uh, and if they relapsed, boom, they went to jail within a week or two for uh, for two or three days. Uh, and we wouldn't give them their driver's license back. And it really worked. And I made the uh, the drunk drivers pay for the whole program. I made a profit for the state every year, between $100,000 and $300,000. Paid for my whole $2 million budget. Uh, so it can be done. And yet there's a movement in our country and worldwide to normalize drug use, to do exactly the opposite of what you had. I just had a um, podcast with John Redmond about the United Nations. And, and some people are saying, well, you know, you shouldn't force kids or force people into treatment. You should allow drug use. You should allow people who use drugs to be part of health policy. Um, and uh, that's problematic. Well, uh, I think we have to look at the experience where that has happened. And I would look at China. Uh, China, um, People in China used opium. The British took over the opium trade, actually fought a war with China to be able to sell opium in China uh, because they were making a lot of money. The opium was grown in India, which was under British control. It ruined China, absolutely ruined China. And this sounds very extreme, but when Mao Zedong came in, and could be, I'm, I'm very anti-communist. Uh, uh, there's a very good book on this called Red Star Over China. Uh, when the communists took over, he said, okay, you got 90 days to clean up your act. 
if you're continuing to use drugs or sell drugs, we're going to execute you. And they stopped having a drug problem. A little okay. harsh. A little harsh. Yeah. But my point is that uh, people can stop doing these things. And if they get good treatment, now the purpose of treatment, if people say, well, treatment doesn't work because, you know, unless people want it, it's baloney. Okay, that's like telling somebody with cancer, you clean up that tumor on your own a little bit before we'll, we'll give you any treatment. The purpose of good treatment is to educate people, to get them to accept their addiction and to motivate them to do something about it and to teach them that they can live a happy life. Uh, so people can be forced into treatment and be exposed to all of that. Uh, but you have to keep people alive first. I was an EMT. I was president of an EMS squad for ten, you know, many years. Um, uh, we've had a number of situations with drug overdoses where people were dying right in front of me. Uh, and the paramedics came in and gave them uh, naloxone and they woke up. Uh, and I can remember particularly a really beautiful young 23-year-old girl. She was slipping away. We couldn't, we couldn't stop it from happening. And they gave her that and she, she's alive today. I'm convinced of that. So I'm in favor of that. I'm in favor of keeping people alive. Sadly, we do um, that. People have had like 10 lives with naloxone coming yeah. back from the dead. Um, yeah. Because we're, we're not focusing on the upstream problem. Right. So there's, there's, you know, what, maybe 5% of the population that has a substance use disorder. And we're putting right. like 90% of our focus there. Yeah. But we're completely ignoring the ultimate goal for me would be to prevent a new generation of Americans who right. become addicted in the first place. We've just said, right. we've given up on America. It's like, oh, well, you're just going to get addicted anyway. So let's just right. push treatment. Yeah. And of course, especially as a physician, I'm pro-treatment. But I also don't want to see you know, the death toll continued to rise or even stay stable. Right. Um, and right now what we're doing is we're bailing out the water without plugging the holes in the ship, without- No, you're right. And we need to do a lot more, a better, job, a better job on prevention. And families can do that if you empower families to commit mm -hmm. people. Because most of the time, the families have been struggling with this for years or a year or longer. They want to do something, and the, the person is an adult, and they say, well, we can't make them do anything about this. That's why I'm in favor of those civil commitment laws. Uh, Delaware can't, has one. Can't they be abused? I've seen, as as a, I'm the receiving end of a lot of people come in on a 5150, what it's called in, San, in uh, California, uh, commitment as a danger to self, others, or gravely disabled. Mm -hmm. I've right. tried that methodology, people who are like, you know, how many times can you overdose on fentanyl and you don't want treatment? Maybe I'll put you on a hold because the fentanyl's hijacked your brain so you could at least have time to detox. And then, you know, it doesn't hold water. Those those uh, commitments are are just undone um, by, by the psychiatrist. But I've also seen the other end where um, people call 911 and commit someone or saying that and it's just not true you know and we just undo those well that can things. happen and that's why you need to have a proper evaluation the minnesota has the law and um, as soon as you're committed you are evaluated by a trained substance abuse professional to see if it's legitimate uh and that's what needs to be done right uh, and then if the person but needs sometimes treatment, it's hard to tell you know he said she said well um uh i would leave that up to the skill of the counselor um, to be able to talk to them about it. 
Uh, you may have to do it a couple of times. Um, you know, we have, I was trying to deal with a case like this in Florida, where the judges in Florida, uh, people get committed. And then as soon as they stop using it, the judge says, okay, you're free. Uh, other counties, the judges say, no, 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 no. You're, you're staying in treatment for a while. So we have to, you know, impress upon the legal system to do a proper evaluation. All my drunk drivers got a two-day evaluation, two days of evaluation in person. Uh, and then we made a decision whether they were in need of uh, intervention into their alcohol or drug problem. Uh, we gave them surveys. We did observations. We gave them training. We showed them movies. And at the end of the two days, they got an evaluation. And um, I, I, we dealt with 30,000 people a year. Half of them went to treatment. Right. And how many of those were successful? Did you change their lives? Well, we did a five-year study. And uh, we had the lowest recidivism rate for DUI in the country because we looked to see whether or not they had another DUI. That was our job. And uh, there were... Uh, the highest relapse rate were among the second and third offenders. Um, I think first offenders, it was fairly low when we got to people fairly early on. I don't remember all the data now. This is 20 yeah. years ago. But uh, I, I know we checked with other states and we had the lowest recidivism rate. Yeah, I think that that's a way of saving lives, saving lives of those individuals who have the alcohol use disorder, who, who got into drug driving and the lives of people that they may have injured if they didn't get that treatment. Right, right. Went right. behind the wheel. So, so I always, I, I used to do criminal defense in New Jersey. Whenever I had somebody with a drug problem, I always made sure they had gotten adequate treatment and long-term treatment uh, because that's what you need. And then we set up drug courts uh, in New Jersey. We have them in other states now where people are monitored for anywhere from one to five years. Uh, and if they have a positive drug test, they put them in jail that weekend. Uh, they don't fool around. They have a remarkable success rate. I know they've got them in a lot of states now. There's a National Drug Court Association that's promoting that. Um, I don't know about California, but New Jersey, we have a pretty good system there. Uh, you have to pretty much, if you have a drug problem, you have to work to get into prison in New Jersey um, because we have a lot of good pre-trial diversion, good evaluations, uh, done very well. I done see very... people who come for jail clearance before they go to jail and invariably yeah. there's uh, you know drugs involved. And I say, if take this as an opportunity, I know this is a terrible thing for you to go to jail, but take this as an opportunity right. to get your brain back and reprogram your life, you know. Right. We, um, we found the treatment was not that effective in jail. Um, this is what I did for 15 years, set up uh, prison programs in New Jersey. Uh, what we found worked better is if somebody got a parole date, let's say September 11th, okay, or September, uh, the last two or three months, we released them from prison put them in a residential treatment program for until they got out on parole. And the reason for that um, is until somebody has a parole date, you can't believe a word they say. They're just doing what they can to get that parole date. So they don't have to lie to us anymore. They got their parole date. And then we put them in residential mm -hmm. treatment. Uh, and that's a program that I started. It's been around for about 30 years now. Uh, we actually have a 500-bed uh, prison addiction treatment program in New Jersey called the Laney House that a friend of mine set up. Uh, so I'm all for that. And people do recover. Dave, you've taken your personal experience as a young man and transformed that to a, a lifetime passion of helping and saving people. So really commend you for that. Um, and you're so articulate with this. 
um, you know, final words, drugs and legal system. What, what are your- We're, we're looking to bring justice to the people that have been victimized by the marijuana industry. We are relentless, we're confident, and we're not gonna give up. So if you have a case, we will do everything we can to help you and get justice for you. Our goal is to destroy the marijuana industry. And uh, this lawsuit we're about to file in New York, having to do with financing, is going to make the the Wall Street financiers very nervous. Okay. Um, listeners, um, I will have the number and email for civil, their website and the contact information okay. in the show very notes. Good. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity. It was really yeah. wonderful. And I want to say thank you to, to, to know Roger. You Shout out to Roger for the question, a very difficult one, yeah. disturbing one with right. violent acts. Um, right. Very sad, difficult to see anybody with a any type of violent reaction. Um, must be right. scary. And thank you, Dave Evans. Amazing amount of work that you have done, advocacy over many years, continue to do, uh, relentless. So may you be blessed with strength and health um, to continue your productivity. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit IsaacOne.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oneet Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths. Mm-hmm.